Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dear Katie, where survivors of sexual assault, rape, and abuse share their stories from hurt to healing. I am your host, Katie Kessner. When I was 18, I appeared on the cover of Time Magazine, speaking out nationally and publicly as a victim myself. I have spent my entire life helping survivors find their voices, empowering others to step up to end the violence, and educating students around the world. This episode is with Joseph Carabas. Joseph, if you have ever read some good science fiction or fantasy novels, you may definitely know who he is, but he himself is a survivor of childhood physical and sexual abuse. It shows up in his writing, and if you think there's a connection, you're correct. (laughs) Join me and my co-host, Claire Kaplan. We engage in a freewheeling conversation with Joseph. He is fascinating and shares his entire life story. It was so tough and abuse that was inflicted upon him is unimaginable. He was so young and he has gone through so much in terms of his own healing process and learned how writing in particular has been his salvation. One of the best parts I found in meeting Joseph was learning what a lovely and kind man he is. He exemplifies so much about how survivors of abuse, violence that would have been called torture in so many worlds and spaces, can grow into a fantastic therapist um, kind of sense of self. And he has loved and supported so many around him and, and their own journeys. Listen in. Welcome to the Dear Katie Podcast. My name is Katie Kessner. And my name is Claire Kaplan. Before we start, we want to remind our listeners that the contents of this podcast could potentially be emotionally difficult, especially for survivors of violence. So we encourage you to take care for your safety and well-being and to please reach out to friends, family, or even an anonymous hotline for support. You'll find additional resources on the Take Back the Night Foundation website, and we'll give you that address at the conclusion of the podcast. Thank you so much, Claire. And we are so excited to have joining with us a fabulous author, also a survivor, Joseph Carabas. So Joseph, I may have said that totally wrong, but I hope I got your name sort of right. Um, I think so many should know much more about you and your pathway through life and where you come to as an author, because it's truly a fabulous journey. So could you share a little bit about you with our listeners? Certainly. Thank you both for uh, welcoming me to this platform. It's it's very gracious and kind of you. Uh, I am Joseph Carabas. I am a full-time author. Hurrah. And uh, I currently live in Nashua, New Hampshire, which is basically a suburb of Boston to many people. Um, I've been writing and getting paid for it since the late 1970s. As Katie said, I'm in the other half of life at this point. Um, really enjoying it. Uh, and when people say to me, what types of things do you write, Joseph? I tell them I write autobiography and everyone gets a chuckle. And, uh, my, my autobiography sells as horror and science fiction and fantasy and children's stories and poetry. And, uh, I even have what, uh, some people have called a chick lit book in the works, which, Okay, fine. But um, that's that's me. And uh, 
you should all enjoy reading my books. Yes. And Joseph, I think it's so honest and transparent in so many ways and accessible because all of our autobiographies, when we look at them with scrutiny and honesty, are probably a little bit horror, a little bit fantasy, a little bit truth, a little bit, you know, all, all the things you said. And so I think that's probably what makes you so accessible and interesting as an author and what has helped you have this full-time career, which is so lauded, I think, and, and lovely that you can do um, full-time to just dedicate yourself to your artistry. So um, we look forward to learning more about that in the podcast. But, you know, ultimately, all of our listeners, um, so many of us are survivors ourselves, and also coming to this platform, hoping for um, how we can help those around ours, uh, us who are also survivors. And your own autobiography includes your own survivorship. And I think we might start, even though it's really tough to go there, um, you know, you grew up where and how and when and what led you to the survivorship that you have? Well, I was born in uh, Melrose, Massachusetts, and uh, lived there with my family, my extended family, on my father's side until just about the age of three, at which point we moved to Manchester, New Hampshire. And um, it was uh, roughly at that point that uh, the sexual and physical and emotional abuse came on full strong. It had been occurring prior to the age of three. And uh, if people read some of my works, they can they can see where that comes through. <clears throat> but uh, from about the age of three to the age of uh, 11, um, I was repeatedly sexually abused by my mother and uh, physically and emotionally abused by both my mother and father um, until I was about 15 or 16 when I basically left home. So... Um, for those of you who are survivors of this kind of activity, I want you to understand that I want you to know moving forward that you can get past it, you can get through it. I know it is painful and I know that it is work, but it is doable and you can heal. Joseph, I, I know I love that you, you gave us that fast forward, but I, I really think that for our listeners, it would be helpful if you could sit in that fire because a lot of times I hear from folks like, how can you remember what happened to you when you were three? They can't even remember the first time they tied their shoes. Like, I, I think we should like talk about that memory um, and how, you know, how is it, you, you know, how is it that you can remember that youthful child state? The brain actually has various types of memory and this particular, these particular memories are what are called episodic memories, meaning that the event is captured um, fully. Uh, and my, I have episodic memories going back to just about one and a half years old. The reason that these memories can be in and so accessible is because, quite honestly, they are so out of the mainstream. They, the violence of them uh, or the betrayal of them in many cases, and in, in my case, I think of them as betrayals, 
because of the amazing physical and emotional and spiritual and psychological energy that is thrust upon the child, the brain captures it. And, and when someone says, how can you remember things that, that young, when you were that young, my response is, how could you not remember an event like that? You know, when, when, and I apologize to your audience ahead of time, I apologize to you, Katie and Claire, please interrupt me if this is something you don't want me to go into. When a 40-year-old man picks up a rubber hose to beat his son because his son is blind and tripped, um, that stays with you. I think that's so well put, Joseph, but right. And I, Claire, I know we'll follow up, but first I want to thank you for that truly brutal honesty about how our memories work. And I, I believe that our listeners are going to find also the same. I wonder sometimes if the brain works the same on joy as it does on abuse, right? Like I'm trying to go back in my brain and maybe were there any joys that you remember as well? And clearly I, my own fear is that our brains must have, you know, a, a way of remembering the most painful over the joy, but I'm not sure. What's your thought on that? Well, I believe, at least speaking for myself, yes, there are moments of intense joy in my childhood. Um, they are when I was alone with my sisters who went out of their way to protect me. Um, as much as they could, they were older than me and would often attempt to hide me. But, um, excuse me. Um, my moments of joy were very often by myself out in the woods, um, seeing the animals, watching animals at work, at play. Uh, that's, that was my joy. Or in my case, very often in my case, once I learned how to read, and I did not learn how to read until late because no one knew that I was blind until uh, I was five years old. Um, <clears throat> once I learned how to read, oh, my God, did I dive into the world of books. They were one of my greatest escapes uh, because in the books that I read in the school library, um, you had heroes and villains, but the heroes always cared about and loved, and they were my surrogate family. My imagination allowed me to escape and find joy. And um, as I say, everyone who is listening to this podcast, everyone who takes part in this podcast, found a way to survive. If we didn't, we wouldn't be on this podcast. We'd be under the ground somewhere or floating, you know, back up on a stream, something like that. So we found ways to survive. One of the, one of the techniques, one of the tools that allows us to come forward and talk about it and share the experiences is using those survival tools further as I have, for example, and I'm, I'm not saying everyone needs to pick up a pen, but it was just what I did. Um, to use those tools to develop them further and also to recognize 
this tool has used has has spent its course now i need other tools and that goes into what claire was saying earlier about finding the help seeking the help contacting people sharing your experiences i yeah no i hate to ask the the raw the rawness but i feel like some of our listeners truly joseph they just need to dig in on that raw experience you know, the physicality of it. Um, and our bodies are our temples, <laughs> our, our physical beings that we live in and breathe through and think about when we rest our head on a pillow. And yet we sometimes find when others have touched them, groped them, <laughs> scrutinized them, it, they become hateful to us. And I think so many of our listeners always think about how do I, how do I find my body back? How do I find my brain back? How do I re-carve out my own landscape of my own I pronoun self? So I, yeah, so in a long-winded way, yes, how can you explain to our listeners exactly. So some will hear you loud and clear because they're sitting right with you. And some will say like, that's so close to what I went through. But I, I do think that transparency and rawness, if you're willing to give it to us would be wonderful. And to talk a bit, you know, cause you said you left home when you were about 15. So how did it stop? It, it, you know, how did it stop? And, and where did you go when you left home? I'm just, you know, you were young. I'm, yep, perfectly, perfectly willing to, to go there. Um, starting at about the age of three, my mother would uh, several nights a week come into my bedroom wearing nothing but underwear and a bra and uh, get into bed with me. And <clears throat> she would manipulate me, for lack of a better term. Um and I hope your listeners can appreciate there's not a lot that a three-year-old can do. So um, she would then begin insulting me. I was not a man. I was not adequate. She never used the term adequate. But I was not someone she could be with. And then she would leave after, oh, I don't know, half, three quarters of an hour. And not long after, my father would come in um, because I had been with my mother. What I remember most, I guess, is the screams of my sisters in their room. The door closed because they could hear all this going on. And... Um, as I say, my sisters did their utmost to protect me. They hid me in their closet. They hid me under their bed. Um, of course, <clears throat> you know, it's, a, it's I think, a seven-eight-room house. There's not a lot of places you can hide. <laughs> and once adults know where somebody's being hidden once, it's pretty much the game's over. Um, and that's, you know, the fact that I am helping people is to me, that is, 
that is the reward for what I went through. That is the point of it. I went through it so that I could give to others what was denied to me. And that has so much meaning for me. So again, thank you for this opportunity. Um, my father, um, I think people who survive childhood trauma, at a certain point, they may be able to understand why their parents did what they did or whoever. Um, I, I have enough training now. I have enough background and research in these fields to understand. But obviously, uh, your listeners, and I'm sure you folks can, can hear the energy in my voice, it's still difficult. And I'm, I, when I talk with groups and I talk with individuals and they say, will this ever go away? No, no. To the best of my knowledge, it won't. But you can get past it. You can get over it. And even though there's emotionality in my voice, there's energy in my voice, it is now to me something that happened a long time ago. And I am gifted now with a loving spouse, uh, a wonderful dog, fine neighbors. Um, so getting back to the joy element, um, there is joy and we have to recognize the moments of joy that are in our lives because they do exist. They may not have existed in the past. We may have to gone, have gone searching for them, but they are there. Claire asked how I got past all this um, and, you know, what caused me to leave home at the age of 15. What caused me to leave home at the age of 15 was, uh, this was back in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And uh, there were these things people were using nowadays. They were called computers. They were huge, massive things. They filled a room. Anyway, there was a, a Northeastern professor came to our high school. And I was just a mediocre, like unimaginably mediocre student, which again is one of the hallmarks of people who've had this kind of trauma in their lives. Um. And uh, he, he put a computer program on the board. I didn't ever studied computer programming. But I looked at it and I said, that's wrong. And Mr. Edmonds, good old Mr. Edmonds, the science teacher, he's getting apoplectic. Oh, he's, you know, you can just hear him going, Carabas, shut up, shut up, Carabas. And the professor looks at what he wrote and he looks back at me and he goes, what's wrong with it? So I said, if what you have said is true, that line needs to go down there. That logic statement won't work, blah, blah, blah. So um, he comes up to me after that whole thing was over. And he says he'd like to talk with my parents. And I'm going, oh, my God, I'm going to get killed because I spoke out, you know, because I said something. Well, no, he wanted to know if I'd come to Northeastern and uh, sit in on a class or two. And my parents were thrilled, get me out of the house, get me away from them, because I was constantly in trouble. Uh, so from there, um, I ended up in MIT for a day, just a day. Uh, I was not prepared for MIT, let alone Northeastern. Um, but they, the feeling was that I was such a phenomenal resource <clears throat> or latent talent or whatever you want to call it 
that they uh, got me uh, a thing at the Lincoln Laboratories, which was, uh, I think it was part of MIT at the time. I have no idea what it is now. But uh, I got to play with computers at uh, Lincoln Labs. And that got me out on weekends. And from there, I just began traveling. You know, I want to talk about your next steps and your wisdom and abuse, but I uh, wisdom and advice. But also, I think a lot of us need to think about how we maybe let our our siblings and bystanders. I'll say, you know, sometimes they're siblings, and sometimes they're the coach, the teacher, the other people who knew, who tried, and didn't always succeed. So let's definitely go there. If you're willing, go ahead, Claire. But before, I do have a quick question before you start on that. Did your sisters experience any, I mean, they experienced the violence to what they witnessed that happened to you. Did, were they the receiving, were they the recipients of violence as well? Um, my, my eldest sister, who's 10 years my senior, for as long as I've known her, she's had this bizarre scar on her forearm. And uh, once I got old enough, I, I asked, what, what is that? What happened? And the story was that um, she had been attacked by geese in my grandparents' house. And even at the age of seven or eight, I'm thinking, how could you have geese in grandma and grandpa's house because they lived in the second story of a two, uh, two story home. Um, so it, it didn't make sense. Um, you know, and it's, it's the kind of scar that would appear from a compound fracture. Uh but they, she has never talked with me about it, and I have respected her not to want to talk to me about it. My other sister, we jokingly referred to her as the someday kid because it was always stated, someday you're going to get it. That's what my parents would say to her. Someday you're going to get it. Back her in a corner. Someday you're going to get it. Uh, so there would be threats, but no action. I, again, with with age and training, et cetera, comes some kind of understanding. My father had witnessed, he came from a large family. <clears throat> my father had witnessed my grandfather physically abusing my grandmother. So he had some real strict psychological barriers about doing anything to women, about harming women, which... Um, was actually also fascinating because he he definitely was not kind, civil, gracious to uh, women he knew, uh, and and part of it you might you might want to say, well, that was the era he was raised in. No, that was the energy of the family system he was raised in. And, uh, you know, another thing that your, re- your listeners may appreciate, these things don't pop up in isolation. If you were traumatized by somebody, that person who traumatized you was traumatized by somebody, was traumatized, it goes back. 
And it, it kind of, I, I, the way that I think of it and the way I share it with people is every family, every person in a family is surrounded by patterns of energy that that family has accumulated over time. And, and here again, I, I keep on going back to this because I want your listeners to be aware. One of the things you can do is break the energy. You can stop the energy that has been putting you into these situations and, and surrounding you, but you have to do it yourself. You can't sit back and go, oh, I wish the world were a better place. You have to get up. You have to stand up. You have to go and find people who will work with you and help you. Um, I probably got off track. I apologize. No, no, that's great. Thank you. And 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 you answered the question that I asked, so thank you for that. Um, and you were going to talk about a little bit about how the, the violence stopped. You said it stopped at 11. It stopped at 11. Well, <clears throat> the sexual violence stopped at 11. Um, because I matured, or I was obviously starting to mature. Um, and um, I don't actually know why my mother stopped. Didn't stop my dad, though. Um, as a matter of fact, if anything, I would say he, he took over for her, not sexually, but physically. Um there was a tremendous amount of body shaming that went on. Um, and through those repeated and continual insults uh, to the core personality, if you will, to the, the sense of self dignity, uh, you develop a, a self-loathing and a self-hatred, which again, most people, the statement that I, I find so wonderful is fish don't know they live in water. People in these situations don't realize they're in those kinds of situations. It's the only thing they've ever experienced. And that means they're not well equipped when they go out in the world to meet people. They're always expecting pain. They're always expecting abuse. They don't think of it as abuse. They think of this is the way it is. Um. And that, that's one of the things that has to change with awareness. Um, the the, nor, the um, normalization of abuse in our culture and then within families, um, it does require a tremendous amount of resistance on an individual and a family and certainly in a cultural level that is challenging especially for survivors who, like you say, you know, this is, but this is what's normal because you don't know that there's any other alternative. Yes. That's, that's one of the things that uh, is, is the greatest stepping stone, the largest stepping stone. If people can recognize that, that what's happening to them is not right, is not the norm. That is the first and greatest step, no pun intended, towards recovery, towards healing. Because the minute one recognizes this is not the way it's supposed to be, they've opened up all new avenues. They've opened up incredible doors to themselves. They've made themselves available finally to whatever healing is out there. And Joseph, let's 
let's go in a slightly different, but also very important direction. Your identities, you know, your he pronoun. Um, I, I think it would be really important for our listeners to think about a couple other dimensions. You, as a male survivor, what makes that different for you and in your opinion over the she's or the they's? And also, you know, you were kind enough to graciously say about your blindness. And I think that so many, we have not really um, talked about how being differently abled affects survivorship either. And I really would love you to speak to both of those identities that you have. Um, well, again, the, uh, <laughs> the blindness, um, <clears throat> excuse me. I was my, my mother's father for reasons that I really don't understand. To me, he was always this gracious, loving and kind person who also attempted many times to get me out of that situation, passed away when I was young. Um, he, whenever we were together, he would teach me, um, not that I had this difficulty, uh, he would basically help me to get by with the difficulty, to make it, he, one of the things he said to me very early on was, Whatever is your weakness is your strength. Whatever is your strength is your weakness. So the fact that I had just amazingly horrible eyesight, couldn't see at all, uh, meant that the world of sound was vastly open to me. Uh, and I, I lived in a world of sound. Um, so for people out there who are differently abled, which I think is a wonderful way to phrase it make use of what you have instead of instead of defining yourself by what you lack define yourself by what you have because that's what will get you moving forward that's what will help you uh, recognize your abilities recognize what you can do there's an amazing number of things that the differently abled can do could always do and now are empowered to do. Yeah. And jo Joseph, I think the one thing we should talk to our listeners about in that is definitely honor ourselves, but also you also extended yourself out to others who might provide professional help at, at point in your life, right? So maybe speak to, you know, how many times can we trust another with hearing our narrative? How many therapists or counselors or, you know, in-house treatment centers, should we try? And what would you guide our listeners on that outside, you know, not, not a loved one, but truly a quote professional who says, I, I'm a trauma therapist or I'm a treatment center. How would you, I think you have experienced multiple and, and, and availed yourself generously to that sort of space. So could you speak to that? In my case, there was a single incident, if I may call it that. There was an act of road rage on my part. Um, no one was hurt. Nobody was injured. Everybody, you know, no, nothing was damaged. But I realized that the rage inside of me was becoming uncontrollable. 
And I didn't even understand what the rage was about at the time. Uh, I would say to people that I felt as if, if my skin were to crack open, there would be a nuclear detonation let out. Uh, that's how much rage I was carrying inside of me that I couldn't express. When I, when I had that road rage incident, I recognized I was too close to letting it out at things I cared about, at people I cared about, at the environment. So I got home and uh, my, my beautiful, loving wife, who's been with me uh, 43, 44 years, long time. Um, she, she, you know, what's, what's wrong? How come, what are you doing back home? And I, I just got out a phone book because back then we had phone books. And I said, I have to go see a counselor. I have to go see a psycho psychologist, psychiatrist. I need to see somebody and talk to them. Why? What's going on? I said, I can't tell you, princess. I've always called her princess. So um, I called up. There were like five or six listed in the phone book, in the front of the phone book. These were the crisis, the emergency contacts. So um, I chose one. I called them up. Uh, a, a woman answered the phone, the receptionist. Can I help you? And I said, I think I need to talk to somebody. I'm concerned I'm going to hurt myself or hurt somebody else. Okay, well, that fast-tracked me right there. Um, so she said, well, we can set you up to talk with, and she listed a bunch of female therapists. And I knew something inside of me said, no, I want to talk to a guy because I had I couldn't talk to women. So she said, well, okay, we have one gentleman who's working with us currently and I'll set you up. And it was one of those truly amazing cosmic things. How did Richard, the therapist, what made him be there when I called, you know, one of the great mysteries of the universe um, and he was just a phenomenal therapist. And I remember talking with him after the fact, um, cause he and I remained friends for quite a long time. As a matter of fact, I, I've dedicated, um, some of my work to him. And if people read the augmented man, you'll see him listed in the, uh, in the, uh, dedications anyway. Um, I asked him, you know, what, why did you go with me and do things the way you did, you know, talking and stuff. And he said, at one point he realized he had to begin trusting me that I knew more about how to get myself out than he did with all of his training. And he had just an amazing amount of training. And part of that training for him was trust the client, which I have taken to heart in my own work with people. Trust the client. Um, let them share their story. From or at, While working with Richard, I also got in touch with uh, Dr. Santiago, um, who was just another brilliant, brilliant. He was a uh, psychiatrist. And... He also 
let me be me. Uh, and I, I should let your audience know that at this point I had myself committed to a psychiatric institution because I was that concerned about uh, what was going on around me that I was no longer felt I was in control of what was happening in my life. Two turning, two major <clears throat> points when I was in the hospital that that are important, I believe, both for my story and for your listeners. I was undergoing one evaluation. I'd been there several days. And uh, it was basically kind of a modified Rorschach. What do you see in this picture? Not a Rorschach type picture, but, <clears throat> excuse me, what do you see in this picture? And there were some pictures that I just said, I can't, I, I, not, I can't see anything. Go past them. So, okay, they went past them and went past them. We went through, there were 46 pictures, which is quite a bit by today's standards. And we were done, and the uh, the clinician was, all right, well, you're, you're done, Joseph. And I no, let's go back to the beginning and start again. And she just stared at me, and she said, okay. And we went through them again. And the ones that I stopped at before, I said, give me a minute. And I came up with a story for that picture. You know, say, tell, tell us what you see in the picture. So we finished. <clears throat> And she put the cards down and she's looking at me and she said, I have to tell you how impressed I am that you were willing to go through that, that you were willing to put yourself through that pain and, and talk about the things you did. That's amazing. And I said to her, I looked at her and I said, don't you think I want to be well? Do you think I want to be like this the rest of my life? That was a key piece. A second key piece um, and this, this goes to what you were talking to uh, earlier, Katie, about finding the right people. There was another clinician, a gentleman, who I could tell just by his behavior that he was frightened of me. I'm, so he's, he's asking me these questions, and I'm just looking at him. And I said to him, shake my hand. And he said, no. So I said shake my hand. You want to prove to me you want to help me? You shake my hand. He said, no. And he pulled back from me. So I got up and walked out. A couple of hours later, Dr. Santiago comes into my room <clears throat> and he says, whatever this fellow's name was, tells me that um, there was a, a difficulty in the session. And I said, to him, not to me. So, well, what did you say to him? And I said, shake my hand. He reached right over and shook my hand. He reached right across. He was sitting on one of the other beds in the room. It was a, a shared room. He just reached right across and shook my hand. And I looked at him and I started crying. And I said, thank you. And he said, are you okay? And I said, you just proved to me that you're not afraid of me. You don't think I'm a monster. And again, <clears throat> that's something that people who come out of the situations I do, I came out of, tend to think of themselves as monsters. And, and again, I'm not plugging my book, but I'm just letting people know. If you read The Augmented Man, the whole thing is those children in those situations think of themselves as monsters and, and what society and family do to them. 
But Dr. Santiago proved to me in that instant that I was not a monster, that I was worth something, that I had value to him. And I was able at that moment to recast, if you will, to my grandfather who died early or died when I was very young, never had a chance to repeatedly, you know, save me. Um, And it gave me a recognition, yes, if this man with all of his learning, Dr. Santiago, I mean, I I was in his office, you know, it was like a mosaic of awards and certificates on his wall. If he thinks I have value, then I must have value. So I borrowed, if you will, I borrowed his belief in me until I could have belief in myself. And uh, I got out in two weeks, which they said was amazing. And I'm, yeah, well, you know, that's me, amazing. And um, <clears throat> again, still working with uh, with Richard, um, I began exploring all the literature I could find about how does one recover? How does one survive? How does one get past? What is trauma? Of course. And so, you know, I time is short. And Joseph, I think we should welcome you back in a, a further conversation, especially about perhaps how your books could help our survivors um, find their own autobiographies of pain, suffering, and digging really deeply into that narrative. Um, But for tonight, I think we need to get from you, if you don't mind, just two um, thoughts. You've already carried us through your darkest spaces, your memory from age three, the guilt and, you know, I I don't say guilt, but those around us who we love laud and find blood relatives. Sometimes, you know, I think Americana says, you must honor all your blood relatives. And some don't have that. We were adopted. And there's this lore of, oh my gosh, how many generations, how much blood is on the table. And tonight you actually gave us a different dimension, which is the blood on the table, the genetic material doesn't matter as much as our own conversation with ourselves. And we build that out to where to from here. And I, I kind of, you know, my last question for tonight is, let's talk about that for you. You have sisters, you have brother, I'm sorry, you, your mom and dad, your abusers, right? But those are blood and you overcame what it meant to be, you know, guilt ridden by blood, genetic material, because so many of our listeners don't have that or can't go there. And how do you land on that? What's your message to those who are still sitting in genetics and blood? Because I, I, I think they need to hear from you how to say that's not the most important part of healing. Healing the wounds of genetics and blood. We are designed 
by our genetics. We are not bound by our genetics. Whatever you got genetically, blood on the table, wherever you came from, adopted, whatever, that's where it is right now. You decide, you decide where it's going to go. You have the ability as an adult, I appreciate that when you're a child, you do not have this all the time. But when you are an adult, at any point in your adult life, you have the ability to say it stops here. Is it going to be a hard stop? Is it going to be boom? There it is. It stopped. No. Chances are, if it is, please contact me. Let me know how you did it. However, you can say to yourself and out loud to the to anybody who wants to hear, and if nobody wants to hear, just say it out loud. Say it to yourself in a mirror. It stops here. Pick one thing you want to change about yourself. Don't make it a big thing. Make it something that you will know has changed and work at it a little bit. Thank you. Yeah, of course, Joseph. And I kind of like visually where I landed with our conversation tonight is so many places, but I kind of think the indelible imprint, the lasting imprint is you causing a train wreck, car wreck, and pushing on the brakes on your life because sometimes our survivors are going to need that hard stop and total rejigger. And you did that. You did that so graciously, um, honestly, and transparently for all of us. And for the survivors we have, you know, sometimes we need a total train wreck to jigger ourselves into, like, what do we need to totally take care of ourselves? Um, we might be fraught with peril on, I have no money. I have no partner. I have no, everyone hates me. Like, we could we could say, I have, I have, I have. But the honest truth that I think you gave us, Joseph, is you must. It's not, I have, I have. It's, I must. You must. And I'd say, I must. And we have to get honest with I must. I pronoun first, center. And I must. I'll figure it out. And I must because before me comes no one else. Yes. Yes. Very well said. So for our subscribers that want access to additional information, I think you'll get access to how Joseph's journey in his books can help you. So please look forward to hearing about how you can access more from the podcast to serve your soul, serve yourself and serve your healing journey. Um, so for tonight, today um wherever you sit wherever you are um this has been another dear kitty podcast thank you so much for joining us claire roll us out thank you katie um and thank you joseph carabas for joining us today and i look forward to a second meeting we're so grateful also to the audience our listeners who were um who have joined us to listen and to learn no matter what your reason is for being here the podcast is for everyone from all walks of life. And we, we don't even know where you're all from. So 
For your own support, please visit our resources listed on the TakeBackTheNight.org website where you can tune into our upcoming events and gain access to our free legal support hotline. Thank you so much, uh, Claire. And Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. We're grateful to all of you who have joined us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit TakeBackTheNight.org for a list of resources. You can reach out to our legal support hotline, uh, connect with other survivors through our social media, and you can also help other survivors simply by subscribing to our podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your own social media with some remark about what it's done to help you, and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by all of us, an amazing group of volunteers. We care so much about this cause. The paycheck isn't what we're doing for. Thank you to all of our volunteers. Thank you to our listeners. And thank you for our survivors, wherever you are, for being present and joining us in this process of growth, strength, and healing. Always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. 